Hello and welcome to the Meningitis Foundation New Zealand podcast. We aim to provide you with easy to understand information about meningitis and septicemia and the diseases that cause them, mainly pneumococcal disease and meningococcal disease. Today, I'm speaking with Sarah Martin. Sarah was 21 when she started feeling sick. She was tired and run down and put it down to a bad case of the flu. As she got progressively worse, her mum, Cheryl, took her to a medical centre and it was there that the suspected meningococcal B was diagnosed and they immediately transported her to North Shore Hospital where she spent the next four days in a coma. Sarah's recovery has been a long process, both physically and psychologically. And it's changed her outlook on life. Sarah, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Andrea. Can you tell me a little bit about the 21-year-old Sarah? I had just finished university. I had been studying studying a Bachelor of Communication Studies at um, AUT in Auckland. I had recently begun my very first job in the industry. I was working for a small independent production company on a various various range of different shows, but predominantly it was a dog show of all things. Um, I spent, you know, hours in and out of the office, long, long hours. I was there probably 12, 14 hours a day working most weekends and just Mm -hmm. trying to do my best to make a good impression and, you know, get in there and get noticed. Um, Being a, being a 21 year old straight out of university, most of my friends were still in uni. So, Weekends and, and nights generally were spent drinking and, and out. I wasn't a big drinker myself, but I tend to be the sober driver and I'd, I'd happily stay out all night with my friends. So life was busy and life it was, was good. Busy. It was happy, it was fun, it was full. So when did you start to experience some symptoms and just feel that you were coming down with something? So it would, would have been, um, it was a Thursday lunchtime. I suddenly felt really tired so I went and um, had a sleep in my car. I'd set an alarm, so I came back in about an hour later, um, and I just felt crap, basically. I felt totally and utterly drained. I felt like my legs didn't want to walk, everything ached, um, and I just felt... Um, Did you say, that's it, I'm off for the day, I'm going home? Pretty much. I think, I think my colleagues sort of looked at me and said, you should probably go home. I remember calling mum on my way home saying, I'm coming, I'm coming home, I don't feel well, which was quite strange for me because I'm one of those people that I don't, if I'm sick, I don't stay in bed, I, I keep going. Um, so she knew that I, I wasn't well. Um, and I got home, she thought it was obviously the flu, but I wasn't, I wasn't well. Um, and I think I vomited a couple of times and that's, mum took me to the doctor so that was the Thursday night? That was the Thursday night. Um, so it moved pretty quickly. Yeah. What you were feeling from the Thursday morning to the Thursday night was pretty drastic. Definitely. And it was, it was, looking back on it now, it was different from the flu. It was not how I would normally respond to the flu. Um, that evening, I, uh, after going to the A&E, they had, they'd checked me for everything. They'd given me an injection of some sort to stop me from vomiting. Um, they'd, mum mentioned, could it be meningitis? They said, don't think so, Um, but keep an eye on her. They told her to check on me throughout the night, which she did. Um, At one point, I remember crawling upstairs to mum and dad's room um, because I just, 
I, I think I was just beside myself. I didn't know what was wrong. Mm. Everything was wrong. And everything um, hurt. Everything hurt. Mum came back downstairs with me and got into bed with me. She stayed there for a few hours but couldn't handle the heat that I was admitting because I was just so hot. So she had to leave me to it, but she kept coming and checking on me. The next day was just a bit of a daze. I don't, I slept through it. Um, well, in my head, I slept through it. Mum says I was sitting up watching TV with her all day, but I don't remember much of that day at all. Um, but you did end up going back to the medical centre. Yes, that evening, um, Dad asked me what I wanted for dinner and I told him and I went to go to the dining table, which was probably the first time I'd stood up for for a few hours. And After my, lying on the lounge. Yeah. Trying to recover. Yeah. Mm. my And um, we realised my ankles didn't work anymore. I was just kind of shuffling and then... Once I sat down at the dinner table, I couldn't pick up my knife and fork. Everything, all of my joints had just seized. Nothing was working properly. And that's when mum went, okay, now this isn't right. And um, That would have been scary for all of you. Yeah, but we none of us were thinking meningitis. Mm. Not even, we didn't know. It was just, we, it just wasn't right. Mm-hmm. Um, I just remember sweating profusely and just, yeah, at that point. So it was the doctor at the A&E centre that... First said, I think it is. Yeah, we walked into that back into A and E, and the same um, reception staff were on from the night before, mm-hmm. and they took one look at me and went, "Go straight in there." And and I went and lay down. Um, and at that point, Mum took my slippers off, and I had the rash on my feet, and I think she probably screamed. Mm-hmm. And um, they came in, and they knew, they knew pretty much what it was, and called the ambulance. We went across the road. Yeah. So everything after that for you, can you remember much or was it a real blur? And... I remember the ambulance ride. Um, remember how calm and kind and and lovely they were. I was met um, at the doors of the hospital by a team of six doctors who just started working on me as they wheeled me into emergency. I was ha- having lines put in. They were administering um, large doses of antibiotics right there in the hallway. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember... I had a chest X-ray and in the emergency room being sat up on the bed. And I remember complaining about the pillows because it was so hard in there and my head was so sore. Um, And then I remember the doctor came around um, and he felt up my legs and apparently the temperature change from my feet to my knees was the indicator for him that it was meningococcal. Wow. And he just said those words to me. He said... um, he said, it's meningococcal B. Do you know what that means? Did you know what that means? Have I you said ever yes. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> I'd, all I knew from meningitis was you had a sore neck and people died. And that's all I knew. Nev- I didn't have the sore neck. That was never a symptom of mine. I didn't have the photophobia. Um, I had a headache and mm. I had a sore everything. My neck was certainly not something I was complaining about. So... How were your family throughout this time? Were they there when the doctor was actually talking about that? So mum was, so mum obviously took me to the A&E as soon as we got to the hospital. I think dad met us at the hospital. Um, my sister arrived soon after. Um, it was a point after I had been told it was meningococcal um, where things drastically went downhill. Um, I went into total organ failure and I was declared clinically insane. Um, I'd lost all control of my body and your 
primal instincts take over, which is to fight anyone that's coming near you. Um, so I was rearing up out of the bed, fighting off the doctors who were trying to help me. Um, they had to call in security, and they had four security guards trying to pin me down. And my sister just threw herself on top of me because she just needed to protect me. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, eyes rolled back, hearts racing, and then um, they wheeled me off into recess. And that's you know sort of the last thing mum and dad saw was me flailing on a bed, and then suddenly silent. And that's when they thought that I was gone because how could it have gone from what they'd just seen to Fighting so hard, yeah. But that was obviously when they induced the coma. Yes. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. And how long were you in hospital for or in the coma for and then we'll So I was, about- I was in the coma from, um, from Friday night and I woke up on Tuesday morning. So I just have this blank spot. <laughs> Which is a few it. days. Yeah. And I, I remember when I woke up, um, first of all, I remember asking for mum and dad and it felt like they appeared magically, but, you know, they'd obviously come from home because um, it was it was early in the morning. It was maybe 5 a.m. Mum had got the call to say, well, the phone had rung at 5 a.m. for a start and she'd, she thought the worst and that it was the hospital and then that was even worse and then they're like, she's awake, <laughs> which is not at all what they were expecting. Um, they came in and mum said something which confused me and I had to go, what day is it? And she said, it's Tuesday. And I just, just, I thought that I'd been asleep for a few hours. And during that time, your body was healing itself and recovering and fighting with all the treatments that had been given to you fighting that disease? Yes. So I was on life support. Um, so basically they were letting my body rest. Um, all the machines were doing everything for me, um, breathing, and my heart was, you know, being managed. And, yeah, they were just letting my brain recover, mm-hmm. giving my brain a break. And then when my brain decided it was time to switch back on again, um, I, I came out of the coma on my own. We're blessed to have you. It's an amazing story. Now, tell me a little bit about what happened after then, the long, the impacts of the disease and your recovery period. Yeah, so the, the crazy thing is you, you wake up out of a coma, you know you've had meningitis because everyone's told you, um, still don't really know what that means. Um, and I've had a night in a ward and then I was sent home and I had a packet of... Um, like codeine to take for headaches and that was all there's no information that goes with you there's there's nothing there's no support you it just, feels quite brutal after yeah. everything you've been through to just all of a sudden be discharged and that, I think that was probably well obviously one of the hardest things to deal with but because we didn't know what to expect obviously none of our friends or family knew what to expect and so everyone sort of gives you they give you a little bit of leniency for a while that, you know, Sarah's not well and she's not coming out anymore. And then it's just there's no understanding of, of what comes next, which for me was chronic fatigue for maybe two years to the point that at night I couldn't pull a blanket up over myself. I just didn't have the strength or the dexterity. Mm-hmm. Um, the essentially relearning of a lot of things because so much nerve damage was done throughout my body that all those nerves had to reconnect and so just this intense feeling of tingling all over. and um, As things were coming back to yeah, life almost. Yeah, almost. Like everything reconnecting 
feeling things again for the first time. I had this funny feeling in my stomach that I talked to my doctor about, and he went, you're hungry. <laughs> and it was just feelings that I hadn't felt for so long. I just, my body didn't didn't know what what that was anymore. Um, and so it really was like, I guess, like a baby learning everything again and understanding. And did you need to learn to walk again? How No, I was... Your- I was okay to walk. I was shaky. Um, I had uh, the the brain injury was, um, how do I say that? The brain injury left me with a lot of um, sort of nausea and dizziness. Um, simple things like I couldn't walk through a supermarket. There's just too much stimulation. Mm-hmm. Um, things coming at me from the sides was really disturbing and distressing to me. Um, walking along the beach with waves coming in from one side, just it just would just make my head spin. I couldn't do simple things like that. So I just really had to take it back to basics and start slowly. The the easiest thing for me was to pretty much sit in a, a dark room and watch television or something. That was because people talk about recovering from meningitis like a, a major head trauma and the the after effects of a um, major brain damage. Um, so that concentration, did you have problems with headaches or migraines that have also been reported by other people? Yes, headaches. Um, I, 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 surprisingly enough, I had migraines before meningitis and I haven't had a migraine since meningitis, but I do have the headaches. And a meningitis headache is like nothing you can describe. It is like literally feels like your head is being crushed. And I've had it explained to me that that is the meninges swelling around your brain. And so really... Everything's being squeezed. Yeah, your brain is too big for your head. And there's nothing you can do other than lie down. You can't you can't fight it. You can't keep working. You can't keep concentrating. Um, and aside from the headaches, um, the memory loss was probably the the next thing. It's something I still struggle with. Um, short-term memory loss. Right. Now, how long has it been since you were diagnosed and since you spent that time in hospital? That will be 15 years in like three months' time. Wow. But obviously it's so clear to you that it feels like yesterday. In some ways, yeah, it does feel like yesterday. It's something that has definitely shaped my life. Um, It's something I always take with me. It's something, it's funny to say, it's something I'm almost proud of. It's a, um, you cope, you cope with a bit of survivor guilt, um, particularly when we meet with other families that have lost people and I'm sitting there going, well, I'm okay and I've got my arms and my legs and, Mm. you know, I can cope with a headache. Um, so you do deal with the survivor guilt, but at the same time, if I can, if I can be the one that went through it so someone else doesn't have to, then I'm happy with that. So having a legacy Definitely. and ensuring that your survival means something to other people. Absolutely. As long as what I went through was for a good reason, then. And how do you feel when you hear about cases and new outbreaks or teenagers that have been diagnosed and have died in their sleep? I feel angry. I feel angry that it's not being heard, that the message isn't getting out there, that I understand people are still going to get sick, but it's the fact that it's still not being recognised by friends and family and by doctors and that it 
is still so prevalent in our community, and it shouldn't be. Like, it is something that can be vaccinated against now. And don't even get me started on anti-vaxxers, but... um, (laughs) (laughs) It's a whole other conversation. (laughs) But for those that, that have the that make the choice to vaccinate and they educate themselves. They're definitely um, giving themselves and their family a step up towards not having to go through what we've been through. One of the things I would want to say to anyone that's lost someone through meningitis is they didn't know what was happening to them. Like, I had no idea that I was as sick as I was. I wasn't scared because I didn't know. And I can safely say that Anyone who is as sick as I was just simply Mm -hmm. didn't know. Now, you also mentioned that you weren't given any information about meningitis when you were discharged. And what about follow-up care or access to specialists for all of those head trauma um, symptoms that you were talking about? So we were given nothing from the hospital. Um, My mum got on Google which 15 years ago probably wasn't as good as it is today. Mm -hmm. But she managed to find what was then the Meningitis Trust, and she got in touch with them. They immediately sent her out some information, um, which I just trawled over as soon as I could, you know, as soon as I was up to reading that sort of stuff, the after effects, everything, and suddenly everything just made sense. All of these little things that I was struggling with that I didn't realise were all related. Mm. Yeah. Um, and then they, they stepped in and I had, I had someone I could call and I called them probably four or five times a day to go, this is a new thing that I've just realized and I think it's related. And they're like, yep, that's related or, or something they hadn't, they hadn't heard of and they can add to, they can help other people. Um, and they put me in touch with other survivors as well. Um, but they were the ones that suggested going to an optometrist, which I did, who then realised my optic nerve had been damaged, um, and just getting getting through all the little steps right through to counselling so that I could deal with the emotional damage done, basically. Now, given that it's 15 years has passed, are you still dealing with residual effects of the disease? <sighs> Yes, I'd say I am. I have um, probably, the, it's probably the emotional side that I still still deal with. Um, I struggle being in situations where I'm far from medical assistance if I needed it. Um, that sort of thing's always in the back of my head. I'm very aware of people sharing drinks and, or, or walking past someone who sneezes or, that just it it's just puts me straight back to where I was. It's just instantly I'm I'm back to I want to protect myself and I want to you know shut the doors and run away from the world. Um, and I still deal with headaches not as frequently as I used to. I probably only get one or two bad ones a year. Memory loss is still there. Um, generally, when I'm tired, and I think I think the main thing is I've learned to listen to my body. And I know that when, if I'm starting to overdo it at work, that I really need to stop and I need to make sure that when I come home that I rest and I take time on the weekend and I really do listen to my body and I know that I start to, 
I know my my kidneys ache is usually the first sign that I'm starting to be run down. And I just know that that if I don't stop, that things can rapidly deteriorate. And I think that's that's probably where I was when I got sick, was I wasn't listening to my body at all. Um, and then I was incredibly run down and I happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time mm. and picked up that nasty bug and it developed. Out of interest, was anyone in that immediate group of friends or family immunised against meningococcal at the time that you were diagnosed? There wasn't an um, immunisation at the time that I was diagnosed. Right. Um, I was mid-2004. It was the end of 2004 that they started immunising. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, no one was immunised. Also, nobody else developed meningococcal. symptoms. Mm-hmm. So this connection with yourself, your your greater awareness of the health and well-being of your own body. Is that part of your changed outlook on life and the way in which you present to the world now? Yes, I think I I very much have the view of if I'm not if I'm not so sick that I can't get out of bed, I'm not going to waste a moment lying around. Like I'm I don't I don't like to be someone that naps all day or I just want to get out there and I want to live life as much as I can because I can just see how quickly it can be taken away from you. And enjoy it to the fullest. Definitely. Mm. Um, Your family's obviously been a great support for you. Um, Would you, how how important is that in somebody's recovery? Family is just, is everything. Um, I think through having meningitis, our family became a lot closer. We were always a close family, but I know my relationship with my dad changed. Um, my mum had never seen that side of him, um, how how worried he was for me. Um, and he, he was just distraught. Um, we definitely became a lot closer. Uh, my mum's campaigned alongside me the whole way. She's at every meningitis event. Um, and my sister, she doesn't like to talk about it so much, but she's, um, she's definitely affected. Um, but having them with me through it all and understanding and, and my family likes to always make a joke out of something if they can. So there's certainly funny moments through my coma that I always get reminded of. Um, (laughs) that's what you need family for, isn't it? (laughs) Exactly. But I think, yes, without, well, for a start, without my mum, I wouldn't be here. Um, she she didn't, my mum listened to her instincts and she knew that it wasn't, I wasn't right. And that even if doctors had said it was the flu, this wasn't what her daughter was like with the flu. Mm. And if she hadn't taken me back that night and if they'd just let me go to bed like I'd wanted to, then I wouldn't have woken up. And we talk about that a lot, about parents being the ones that are in tune with their children and being able to trust their instincts and act on their instincts as well. So it's an amazing message to actually deliver to other people. What would you say to other 21-year-olds that are out there feeling invincible, feeling that it's not going to hit me? Exactly that. They're not invincible. Um, And it's so easy for them to feel like, Diseases like this happen to other people, but they only 
you know, they only happen to other people until it happens to someone you know. It suddenly hits home. I think they need to they need to educate themselves. They need to make informed choices about vaccinations. Um, if, if, if their parents are against it or, or not sure, speak to their GP, get that information for themselves and, and make that choice for themselves because at the end of the day it's them that could get sick or their friends that could get sick. And it's just whether they're prepared to go through a life of living in the aftermath if they're lucky um, or, you know, basically playing with fire. You're a strong individual. It's amazing Thank, to be able to sit here and, and to share your story with me like this and to, to all of the listeners. If there's any one message to get across to them, um, it's really about trusting instincts, seeing, seeking medical profession, professional advice early, trusting your instincts, acting on it. But more than that, it's about looking at prevention and protecting those you love through vaccinating. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, protecting those you love. Sarah, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's, for me, one of bravery and courage and resilience and sheer determination, and it's, it's really inspirational. Thank you. You're welcome. This is part of a series of podcast episodes by the Meningitis Foundation New Zealand to raise awareness of meningitis, septicemia, pneumococcal disease and meningococcal disease. For more information, you can go to our website at www.meningitis.org.nz or our Facebook page. If you type in the Meningitis Foundation, you should be able to find us. We look forward to having you join us for the next episode. Bye for now.